Speaking of Mississippi is produced by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and made possible by the John and Lucy Shackelford Charitable Fund of the Community Foundation for Mississippi. Over four decades in the early 20th century, Otis Noel Pruitt served as the de facto documentarian of Columbus, Mississippi. Pruitt photographed his fellow white citizens and black ones as well, in circumstances ranging from the mundane to the horrific. The lynching, two of the last public legal executions, fires, and funerals, as well as family picnics, parades, and river baptisms. But the significance of his work was mostly overlooked, and for many years, the photos were in danger of being lost forever. Welcome to Speaking of Mississippi, where we'll explore the landmark moments and overlooked stories of our state's history. I'm Chris Goodwin. Our guest today is Berkeley Hudson, who is the curator of the Pruitt-Shanks Collection at the Library of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the author of a new book on the photographer. What was it like for you to grow up in Columbus? Well, I was just in a cocoon of, you know, a white kid in a little cocoon where I was the uh, youngest of four boys, no sisters. My uh, family on my uh, father's side came into Mississippi in the 1830s and 1840s and 50s. Um, uh, some were in Aberdeen, Monroe County, just north of Lowndes County. Mm. They came from, uh, you know, the Carolinas and Georgia after having come, you know, their their ancestors having come from England and Scotland, some from Ireland. Uh, I did have on my maternal side a grandfather who came from Scotland. Uh, and actually, he my I only had one grandparent when I was a kid. The others had died because mm-hmm. I was the last of, you know, I was a surprise baby. Right. <laughs> uh, but my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, lived around the corner in this rambling uh, Victorian home with a bunch of Pekingese. And so my her husband had set up something called sanitary laundry and dry cleaning uh, in the eight, uh, 1920s. He'd come from Memphis uh, in like 1920, I think. And, you know, the slogan was, when clothes are dirty, dial 630. And then my father ran the Main Street service station. Uh, and so his, his family is the one that had been in Mississippi a long time. Yeah. Uh, and so the Main Street service station was like four blocks from my house. Uh, and my mother would take his lunch every day. And there were three restrooms, one for gentlemen, one for ladies, and one for colored. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, a, you know, over the years, many black men who worked there, and I knew them. I, I grew up, you know, there was a, not when I was a kid, but before there was a pool table you know, and my brothers told me that he used to have these punch boards, which are like old-style lottery tickets that people would come in, men would come in and make bets and stuff. Uh, but when I, I was growing up, I wasn't really aware of, of all of that. Um, so I was in a world where people knew the Hudson boys and they knew me. We all had paper routes. Mm-hmm. My three brothers had the same route in succession. I had a different route, slightly different. My route included Mississippi College for Women, and I enjoyed that route as a teenager. Right. <laughs> uh, and um, and I went to school there at the demonstration school, uh, which was on the campus of MSCW. Yeah. 
Uh, and then I, so I went to racially segregated schools. Um, I lived three and three and a half blocks from Catfish Alley, which was this black strip of black businesses, mostly black. There were a few white businesses in there. Um, and some years ago, I was working on this project, and I took my mother and my oldest brother for a walk around downtown, and I was showing them some of the pictures. And so I said, well, let's walk down Catfish Alley. And my mother's walking along there, and she says, you know, I've never walked on this sidewalk. Wow. I said, why? And she says, white ladies didn't walk here. Yeah. And I said, okay. <laughs> I said, it's three and a half blocks from our house. Yeah. Uh, so through these photographs, I just learned a lot about myself, my family, and my town. Uh, and that's one thing that's been a real gift is to is to develop a deeper understanding about how the personal is not just personal, but it's also bigger than just the individual family, but it connects with the community, the state, the nation, and the world. You know, some uh, there was somebody who came to see a pilot exhibit that I had in Missouri a few years ago. She was from Brazil, and she looked at the pictures, and she says, this reminds me of Brazil, hmm. because Brazil is where the most enslaved people came from, from Africa. Yeah, right. And she got it. She got the connection of what racial segregation and how that functions within a, a community. So... I was just kind of on a road to discovery about this place we call Mississippi and why is it the way it is. Uh, and these photographs have, have opened up my, a much deeper understanding for me personally and also professionally as a journalist, a media historian. Uh, there's just more layers. It's not just to say the phrase black and white. Yeah, It's a very complicated um, I had the chance of having a great professor at UNC, Joel Williamson, who wrote a book called The Crucible of Race mm -hmm. and then A Rage for Racial Order. Um, in working with him, I, I helped. it helped me understand just all the layers and layers and layers of what's going on and how enslavement of people shapes Mississippi to this day, how cotton, how geography how long the sun shines, how hot the sun is, uh, all of that influences has influenced our lives here. Uh, you know, as I've said, it's the it's the the past is a burden and it's a ba it's a beacon. The past is a burden and it's a beacon. Mm -hmm. And so, this project of the Pruitt Collection and photographs have helped me gain deeper understandings and uncover surprises. You know, in terms of black-white relations. So you knew Pruitt, uh, not as an equal and as a friend, but as a professional photographer. And he shot from 1920 to 1960. How did you come to be an owner of Pruitt's archive of nearly 90,000 negatives? Well, I'll say you a caretaker. Yeah. Uh, a caretaker of the negatives. So... Um, I was uh, the editor of a high school newspaper in Columbus, and uh, two of my friends, Bernie Imes, who's a photographer, and Mark Gooch, who's a photographer, uh, the three of us, you know, kind of came upon the collection uh, in the mid-70s, I think. 
or early, oh yeah, mid-70s, around the time I left Ole Miss and went to Columbia University and then was working in Oregon. Sometime right in there, Mark was doing an oral history project from the National Endowment for Humanities. He got a youth grant, and he was interviewing people on Catfish Alley, the black businesses, and some of the white business people who were there. And that's when he went up to uh, Pruitt's assist, former assistant, Calvin Shanks, who had the whole collection of the negatives there. Uh, Pruitt had ended, uh, he retired in 1960, and then he died in 1967. Well, Shanks took the business over that was still called Pruitt's studio for a number of years. Uh, and so Mark went up there and saw the the negatives, and, and they were in pasteboard boxes and wooden boxes, and they were just jibber-jabbered all yeah. around and smell really intensely. They still smell some of them, yeah. <laughs> uh, a vinegar-like <laughs> yeah. smell. Uh, and so then they they told me about it and said, let's go up there again and look. We started talking to Calvin, and he said he was going to make calendars maybe out of some of the pictures, but he didn't sound that enthusiastic yeah. about it, though. He did, you know, he really, you know, he said I wanted to hold on to him for a while because we said, you know, well, we could help you know, we could help maybe take care of him. Yeah. But he didn't He didn't want to do that. And then he died uh, in the, well, I think it was around 83, early 80s. Uh, and then his widow uh, sold a bunch of the photo, the negatives to Billy Frades, who liked train pictures. And then she sold some of the camera equipment, and Billy got some of that. And then she kept a few uh, negatives. But uh, so... After 13 years or so, I say, 13 years of trying, we got the collection in 1987 from Billy Frades and some from Ms. Shanks. Uh, and our goal was to, first of all, was to preserve the collection, then to research it, to exhibit it, and then do a book. So it's taken us a little longer than we thought. And and basically, uh, my my. My friends and I, we worked on it off and on. I was living in Los Angeles. One friend was living in Chicago. Bernie was in, was in, another was in Columbus. Another was in Nashville. So we were kind of spread out, and it was hard, and we didn't even realize what we have. I I think in, in the book I talk about the Firebird story. It's in different cultures, but especially in Russia where a sojourner is in the forest, and uh, he picks up, he sees on the forest floor this incredibly bright, shining, luminescent feather. We'll say it's a red feather. And he picks it up, but he doesn't realize where it's come from. It's fallen from high up in the trees of a very powerful bird. And that's where the story begins. And little did I realize that I picked up a feather in 1987. And I was going to go on a journey, and that journey's continuing now with a book and exhibit. Yeah, as I continue to discover incredible stories, amazing stories, sad stories, powerful stories, horrific stories, shocking stories, beautiful stories, uplifting stories that are embedded in these photographs. And you know, we can't photographs can't answer all our questions, but it can alert us to some things we we need to inquire about. Yeah. And it can, you know, this historian Barbara Narfleet talks about how it can also alert us to what we take for granted. Yeah. And that's what I, I discover when I look at the pictures. Yeah. You know. So you, you saw the power of the images in there. Eventually, you saw 
the burden of the physical collection. Right. And y'all eventually decided it was more than you could handle on your own. Right. That took a good while, though, (laughs) for us to realize that. Because we all wanted it to, you know, for other people to see. We wanted to take the time. Like before digitization, I had this idea of like uh, our, you know, one of my mentors and friends, Tom Rankin, was working on a project in Aberdeen with these 12,000 glass plates of the McKnight collection. You know, and he, he, they had worked with somebody who was printing every one of those, printing from the glass plates and then art, put them in the archivally, you know, uh, sleeves. So I had the idea, okay, let's do that with the Pruitt collection. And I was getting these estimates. Oh, okay, you need maybe $250,000 or something. I don't know. So, but we didn't even know how many we had. Right. And, but at the same time, you know, uh, like I said, we were living in different places. And and I mentioned, you know, I, I mentioned uh, in uh, the late 90s, some of the images were at Mark Gooch's studio in Birmingham, and there was a tornadic windstorm. And unfortunately, the roof, I think, on his studio got leaking and it leaked on some of the negatives. And so Mark Gooch and Bernie Imes and I were there and had to wash wash these negatives because they were all sticking together. Yeah. And, uh, you know, remarkably, there's one image and there's only one negative of it. But, you know, we washed it and it's okay today, you know. The State Archives in Jackson has a rich collection of historical images from across Mississippi, and thousands can be found on the department's website. One collection contains nearly 600 images of Mississippi from the late 1800s to the 1970s made by generations of the Daniels family. It includes panoramic photographs of early floods in downtown Jackson, shots of the Mississippi Farmer's Market, Ferris Street Business District, both the old and new Capitol buildings, as well as images from South Mississippi of the tongue oil industry and Boy Scouts at campgrounds across the state. You can view all the images from the Daniels Collection in the Digital Archives section of the department's website, www.mdah.ms.gov. Tell tell us a little bit about the range of the images in the collection. Well, it's actually astonishing. Uh, so he was a he was a documentarian in terms of his photographic work. He was a photojournalist in terms of his photographic work, which surprised me. I didn't realize that until I was working on my dissertation and mm-hmm. I'm going reading back through the commercial dispatch and here are all these pictures that I never would have thought. But it's a small town. These pictures are on the front page. Right. You know, the studio portraits, oh, birthday club, you know, was for white kids only, but there they were. Yeah. Go to Pruitt Studio and be in the birthday club. You know, and they publish your picture on your birthday. That's right. Uh, he was, you know, he was a commercial photographer taking pictures of, you know, uh, Owens, Florist, you know, nursery, you know, nursery land, timberland, hmm. uh, taking pictures that legal firms and insurance companies would have him take. You know, sometimes I'm just looking through the negatives and there'll be just something just, uh, you know, kind of horrible that mm-hmm. I'll discover, like a woman whose body's burned. Don't know why he made it, but probably for uh, medical reasons or insurance reasons. 
at the same time, there are other photographs that when you put them all within a context, that's the other thing. My my mentor and f- friend, Deborah Willis, says that's why this collection is so important. In fact, Bill Ferris, William Ferris, the former chair of the National Endowment of Humanities, calls this collection a national treasure. And so 20 years ago, Deborah Willis looks at these pictures and she says the same thing. Yeah. It's rare that, so he's a white photographer working in a racially divided community, divided just in terms of how segregation divides, but but segregation never up, was be able to upheld. Right. It was only upheld under force, cultural force. The order does not hold. Yeah. And so here he is, though. He's a white man. He can move in the black community and the white community. Yeah. So he's unusual for a white photographer that way, though his images in the black community are not as complete as, you know, I would want, you know. Uh, but, hey, he took some beautiful portraits of black people in the studio. He took amazing pictures in so many other ways of the black community and white community yeah. uh, interacting with each other. Um, so that's, you know, that's unusual. There were other white photographers. I mean, people may be familiar with Florence Mars in Philadelphia who took pictures of both black and white people, different kind of approach, but nonetheless, hers, hers stand out. And there's a few others, the Ship, I think it's Ship Brothers in Tennessee, Mm -hmm. the Bitter Southerner did a book on Mm -hmm. them, I think. And then Hugh Mangum in in North Carolina, Uh, his pictures were all just studio portraits. So what distinguishes Pruitt is this range. When you say about the range, it's everything from like, a breakfast room with no one in it and a birdcage this empty. Small breakfast room. Why did he make this picture? I don't know. Where's the bird? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, you know, but it's great, you know. And there's another picture of an old, of an old kitchen, just a simple kitchen with a, a stove. And I think maybe it's an old-timey refrigerator where you put ice in it, mm-hmm. you know, ice block of ice in it. That's it. Nobody's in it. I don't know why he took it. And again, he's not whipping an iPhone out of his pocket and taking this. He's having to do this purposefully. Yeah, yeah. No, he's got a tripod. The exposures are long exposures. You know, it could be a minute long exposure, whatever. Uh, And, you know, there's a picture of Oscar West on a wooden barrel with a broom. And he's, uh, you know, he's got a tattered jacket. You can see kind of his shoes are worn. and, you know, he was the janitor, a black man, who, a young man who was a janitor at the Brown Butte Cadillac Company, and he took care of the Brown's children. Why did he take that picture? I don't know. Uh, Pruitt didn't leave a record or a diary, and very few of the pictures are labels. You know, some of the studio portraits are labeled, and, you know, fortunately, uh, I've been able to find people, and my mother was a for a brief time, an archivist at the Lowndes County, Columbus Lowndes County Public Library. And I went through the pictures with them and she lived there for over 80 years, so she knew a lot of people. Uh, The other thing though is is Pruitt didn't just take pictures in Columbus, he took pictures in Jackson Mm -hmm. with the Capitol, you know, the governor's staff and all that kind of stuff with his son, Marvin Lambert Pruitt. And then he had a brother, Jim Pruitt as a photographer in Starkville. But he took pictures in West Alabama, which is very close by to Columbus, at the University of Alabama to like fraternity picture, you know, group 
picture mm-hmm. fraternity at the University of Alabama, pictures in the Tupelo tornado night uh, in April the 5th, 1936, the one that I, I say, you know, Elvis was not, Elvis was, life was spared. He was yeah. like 15 months old and uh, didn't die, but it was one of the worst tornadoes in U.S. history. Um, some debate among climatologists and whether people, was it number two, three, or four, mm. but regardless, more than 200 people died, and it subsequently has been discovered that it's a undercount of the black community. Yeah. And Pruitt actually took a picture of kind of a macabre, a grainy image, nightmarish kind of image of black folks with, with blankets covered, who or black bodies. They're covered up with like thick blankets mm-hmm. in a makeshift morgue, about a half dozen bodies. I don't know why he made the picture, but he made the picture. Um, so, uh, and then he made pictures of the First Baptist Church, you know, that got, that blew down in the tornado, yeah. you know, the top got blown out of it. So, there's a range, a remarkable range. Now, if he'd been a black photographer, he wouldn't have been able to move in the white community, you know, is, is certainly as easily at that time right. in the segregated South. Right. So that is what is unusual, that he, by choice, to make money, to make a living, or to be what I call a photography addict. I mean, he was a jack-of-all-trades photographer, you know, and again, he wasn't the only photographer in Columbus, and, and uh, you know, and I did find one black photographer in that time period, and, and a number of other white photographers, especially after World War II. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he had come to Columbus to work for a German immigrant named Henry Hofmeister, uh, and he uh, originally uh, Pruitt grew up in South Mississippi in Montrose, a small town. Still, still around, but quite small. Uh, and he ended up working with his uncle in a mercantile store nearby, and started getting interested in uh, photography. At that time, you know, it's like people. It's like the people getting a domain name. Right. You know, with the internet, you know, let's get a camera. Right. Right. And a lot of the people that he photographed had never had their picture made before, and they didn't have cameras. I mean, certainly Kodak, you know, came out with cameras in the eighteen eighties. But people in, you know, the South, I mean, Eudora Welty talks about it. Yes, uh, they were they were poor after the Civil War, and they were poor in the Depression, and there were a lot of poor people. Right, poor straight <laughs> there were some There were some rich people, but there were a lot of poor people. But you had a great line earlier um, when you were talking about, you were sort of talking about the respect that Pruitt had for his clients, and you said that in his studio— Everyone was equal before Pruitt's lens. And that really comes through in the portraits they shot, both of, of black Mississippians and white Mississippians. Yeah, there's some beautiful photographs. And and you do you wonder, like, who were they? How much did they pay, you know, for it? Uh, was And I, I, I know that some of them never had their photographs made before. But they have their dignity, whether they're a poor white farmer or, or a poor black farmer. You know, he does— there's, and there's a certain autonomy that's allowed. I mean, and he had an assistant for a few years named Amzai, who actually lived in some kind of structure behind Pruitt's house, you know. And But then the story that I got was that he ended up going to Chicago 
I don't know his last name. I'd love if anybody knows his last name to get in touch with me. Uh, but I think that Amzai working there also probably provided a measure of comfort for the black clients that would come to have their photographs made. Um, so, I mean, there's, you know, I do think in many ways they were equal before the lens. It's, you know, it's, he was a white man, though, taking their picture in a time of racial segregation. And to, but to the degree that they were able, they were able to co-create their image. Yeah. Yeah. For the folks who didn't uh, have the advantage of growing up in Columbus or Lowndes County, tell us about the title of the book, Possum Town. Well, Possum Town uh, comes from how the Choctaw and the Chickasaw uh, describe Spirus Roach, who was a, uh, he ran the trading post. Uh, he had a wizened looking face. His face reminded people of a possum. Uh, and so there are some different ways to, to spell it out, but uh, and I'm not sure the correct pronunciation, but it's Shakwa Tamaha. Or my mother actually was involved in what was called the Shakota Tamaha chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Huh. Uh, so there's a couple of different ways you see that, but it had to do with Spirus, Spirus Roach, who had this wizened looking face, kind of whiskery, narrow down at the bottom. You know, I mean, possums have 50 teeth. Uh, I don't think. Spirus had an excess of teeth. <laughs> but anyway, that's where it comes from. That's great. So, I mean, part of the title is resilience. Uh, and, the, and I think that's really, really important. And you don't understand resilience if you don't understand trouble. You don't understand trouble if you don't understand resilience. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see in the pictures of the faces of these people that he photographed. I see a resilience, you know, not in everyone maybe, but in a lot of them, you know. I see it in how they dress, you know, the clothes they wear for the photographer, how they dressed up. Yeah. You know, they wanted to look good. They wanted to feel good about themselves. Uh, I see it in the, the Rotary Club band, all these white guys in a ragtag looking band, but they got on coats and ties and hats you know, and they're looking as good as they can, but they're, they look pretty poor, some of them, too. Yeah. You know, their clothes are tattered. Uh, but there's a resilience there. I see that in the, the, the black families sitting in chairs arrayed out on their lawn in front of their home, their home where they live. I see that in the white families sitting on their porch arrayed, you know, like a dozen, 15, 20 of them, three generations. Some cases, there are four generations you see in the pictures. Yeah. So there's a resilience there. I see it in Sylvester Harris, the, the farmer that couldn't make his mortgage payment, and he had been listening to FDR's fireside chats. So Sylvester goes into town, drives into town 9, 10, 12 miles, and goes to the western um a Western supply store and gets on the telephone and he reaches the president after 90 minutes and tells him the story and the president says, I'll help you save your home, Sylvester. And he does. And Sylvester goes, goes viral pretty soon after Pruitt takes the picture of Sylvester and his mule, Jesse. Memphis Minnie writes a blues song, Sylvester and his mule blues. Ben Bernie's jazz show in New York 
has a program about him. Preachers in Atlanta say, give a says, uh, who's that? Who's that uh, farmer down in Mississippi? Somebody says Sylvester. He says, yeah, Sylvester. Can I hear it? Yeah, Sylvester Harris. That's who it is. Newsreels came to town from Memphis, Fox Movie Tone, and Paramount. Those newsreels played all over the country. You know, millions of people saw Sylvester in Times Square. They played. <laughs> you know, so. He's he's one of the most resilient figures yeah. in the collection, and all. And I found the, a print. It was one print of a black man in overalls with a mule standing out in front of a unpainted, you know, a house that needs painting, yeah. farmhouse. And I wondered who is this. And after ten years before Google, I found out it was Sylvester Harris. So, um, what are your hopes for the? Pruitt Shanks collection moving forward. I mean, this is a beautiful book with lots of images, but there are lots more images. Will there be more books? There's an exhibit that you have up? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm hopeful it might spur on, uh, you know, another book that won't take uh, 30 or 40 years. <laughs> I mean, UNC Press and its publicity says uh, the first Pruitt book. <laughs> uh but, you know, I'm, what I'm most hopeful for is that people will just get the book and that they'll look at it and they'll ask themselves, how do these photographs connect with who am I and what is my family's history? What is my town's history? What are the questions that photographs that I have in a drawer somewhere or in a file or on my phone that I'd love to get answers to from grandma, grandpa, from the great aunt and uncle or from my brother who's in the hospital now and not feeling well right. and may know some answers to these questions. So I would hope that it inspires people to understand their own legacies, no matter whether they live in Brazil or Belzona, you know, that that they would ask questions about who are we, who am I as a person, who what is my town, my community, what are the stories, what are the stories that I've missed? Yeah. Uh, from my town and my life and how discovering them may help me understand myself better and maybe feel better or at least have more knowledge about myself. So again, that's my main wish before yeah. another book or another exhibit, you know. But at the same time, I'd love for people in Mississippi to, especially to see these pictures. Uh, and that's partly why we're having the exhibit launch in the place where they came from, Columbus, in northeast Mississippi. I'm hoping that the exhibit will go other places in Jackson and Oxford. And uh, I have ideas to have that I'd, I'd love to get funded of a portable exhibit that would go mm -hmm. to small town libraries and community colleges where teachers and clergy and people could be interested, a kind of pop-up exhibit that's not that expensive but could travel from town to town yeah. as a way then to inspire people to come to see the larger exhibits and museums. Uh, and paired with that, I do have a curriculum guide that's being developed by Chuck Yarbrough or Charles Yarbrough, who uh, was selected as the most outstanding high school history teacher in the United States by the Organization of American Historians yeah. two years ago. And he's working with a professor who was at Missouri, but now is at the University of Buffalo, LeGarrette King. So they've developed a curriculum guide for high school students and middle school students. And initially, I got a, a grant from the National Endowment for Humanities in 2013 to start this project. And part of that is I went to Mississippi 
uh, to the MSMS, Mississippi School for Math and Science, and worked with Chuck Yarbrough's class. Mm-hmm. And we had them, we put out 50 photographs on a table. And this was a, either a U.S. history class or African-American studies class. And I had no idea how school, you know, how high school students would react to these pictures. And they were told, pick out one picture that you're struck by, and you've got three days to research it and research the, research the subject area and do a presentation. And it was an amazing, amazing thing. They dug the pictures. They got into it. There was a, a young black woman student from Aberdeen, I believe, and she saw a picture of this a woman who seems to be dressed in a domestic worker's clothes. She's a black woman sitting on a wooden, unpainted porch step, unpainted shack behind her. Incredible look in her, of intensity and just dignity in her face. And then her hands are on her knees in their hands of a woman who works mm-hmm. for a living. Mm-hmm. And this this young student went up and said, those are my grandmother's hands. And tears came to her eyes. And that was a picture she worked on. Man. And so that's when I knew that these pictures can touch anyone of any age if they're willing to slow down and look at them. And, you know, it's the thing about, you know, I mean, we just say, oh, historic pictures. Oh, well, that's not very interesting. I think actually it's, it's more than interesting. It's required reading. <laughs> it's required looking at, but slowly and thinking again. And I I'm really don't want to tell people what to think. Yeah. I want to tell them what to think about, what to look at. Look at these pictures. I mean, I've written some thousands of words, but if the, the my bottom line is I'm just interested in people that look in these pictures and seeing if they can learn something about themselves and the world they live in and the world that used to be and the world that is now and the world that will be. The book is Owen Pruitt's Possum Town, Photographing Trouble and Resilience in the American South. Berkeley Hudson, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me here today. It's been a joy. Speaking of Mississippi is a joint production of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Community Foundation for Mississippi. Our opening music comes from a 1942 recording by Sid Hemphill, the most storied black musician in the Mississippi Hills in the early 20th century. Our closing music was recorded in 1939 by Tishomingo County fiddler John Hatcher and included on the 1985 Mississippi Department of Archives and History release, Great Big Yam Potatoes. I'm Chris Goodwin. And thank you for listening to Speaking of Mississippi.